0: Well hey guys, good evening. As uh, Tyler said, welcome to Grace Church. Really glad that you've joined us tonight. Tonight we're going to continue in the series that we've been doing called Multiply. So we're going to talk about the book of Acts. We're going to dig back into the book of Acts. But before I do that, I want to give you a little bit of an update on a really cool thing that we did this week. So uh, this past Monday, we did our Hunter's Dinner. So this is our, our first, hopefully, annual Hunter's Dinner. And so what we did was we rented a space in in the Bamboosters Hall, and we took a risk, right? Like we didn't really... we've not done this. I don't think any of the campuses at Grace Church have done this before. And we stepped out, and um, the goal is to reach people in the community that are not connected to the church and help Jesus make sense, right? Our first value to, uh, to folks that are seeking Him. And so we brought in a speaker who's well known in the hunting world, and he talked about hunting. I feel like I could go hunt now. I'm not a hunter, but I feel like I could go hunt now. Um, but he came in and he talked about hunting, but then more than that, he shared the gospel, he shared his testimony in the gospel. And uh, it was really, really a cool night. Thank you for your prayers. There were about 80 guys, uh, 80 of us that came, and five guys gave their life to the Lord on Monday. That's cool, isn't it? Which, which is amazing. I mean, that's why we do what we do. Like, this is, this is an important part of church, right? Getting together and, and doing this and sharing time and learning about God and worshiping God. But uh, we're here for the community as well and to help people come to know Jesus. And so tonight I thought it would be appropriate for us as we dig in, dig back into the book of Acts to spend uh, a little time here at the front end praying, especially for those five guys. Can we do that? Father, thank you for tonight, and your goodness to us, and you allow us to do this, God. You, uh, A lot of work goes into this every Saturday, and so many people give so generously of their time and talents to make this happen, and so we just want to say thank you for that, God. And Lord, we're so excited for this past week, and we think about these five men that uh, I don't know what they were expecting when they came on Monday, but uh, you did something inside of their hearts, and so I pray for them, God, I pray that the seed that was planted now, that you would water it and grow it. And Father, we would ask that you would allow us to be part of that as we reach out to them and and love them and talk to them. I pray, God, that you'd even allow them to be connected here with our body, with us. So I lift these men up to you. I ask for you to have your way in their hearts, God. And I lift this service up to you, too, and ask that you would do what only you can do. God, you change us and you grow us. So we give you this time. We love you and we trust you in Christ's name. Amen. So, um, one of the guys that is a hero in the faith for me is a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Who's heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Raise your hand. A few of you. Okay. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in case you couldn't tell by his name, is a German fellow. That's him right up there. Who was born uh, what? Six, 1906 in Germany. And uh, this guy was an incredible pastor, theologian, philosopher, by just this incredible guy who lived during uh, the time of World War II, leading up to World War II. And so he was part of, like his family growing up, he was kind of part of a, of a wealthy family, kind of an aristocratic family. His, his mom was the daughter of a pastor, and his dad was a very popular, uh, prominent psychiatrist, doctor of psychiatry, professor at the University of Berlin. So kind of a, a privileged family. And when he was 14 years old, he made the decision that he wanted to go into ministry. He wanted to become a a pastor theologian. At first, his family was kind of like not excited about that, right? They thought he would do something else. But eventually, he ended up going to college and getting a degree in ministry and uh, pastored a small church in Spain, a small German church in Spain, and then uh, he came actually to the United States. He did a doctoral degree, came to the United States for a while in New York and worked at a seminary, Union Seminary there. And Bonhoeffer, long story short, Bonhoeffer was a guy who became probably one of the most brilliant, accomplished, insightful pastors, theologians in the world at his time, certainly in Germany. And he was also a guy that had uh, insight into what was happening with the Nazis. So he saw the evil that was going on and he knew he had to do something about it. And so he did in lots of different ways. He preached sermons about it he uh, started an underground seminary leading teaching in that seminary developing young pastors right Uh, he was like a spy for the resistance he was actually part he rescued Jews many Jews he was part of a plot to to actually assassinate Hitler and end his regime like a terrible decision for him to have to make right eventually he was taken into prison and then an extermination camp And in prison, and in this extermination camp, he spent his time writing and pastoring people, which is amazing. So, like, one of, certainly one of the darkest places in the history of the world, he was this bright light for Jesus. And he held true to everything that he believed, right? Everything that he believed during that time. And the amazing thing about it is, he chose it. He He chose... I mean, this is a guy who, when all of this was happening in Germany, he actually was over here. He was in the United States. And it was getting worse and worse in Germany. And it was becoming more and more apparent that you weren't going to be able to travel in and out of the country. And he wasn't in the country. And what he did was he chose to go back and to fight the evil. He chose to go back because he knew that fighting Hitler and the Nazis any way that he could was the right thing to do, knowing that it would probably cost him his life in the long run. And so... As the war goes on, eventually uh, it becomes clear that Germany and its allies were losing the war and it's becoming obvious that the end is near and Bonhoeffer was still alive. He was still in this extermination camp. So, like this, I mean, you could imagine, I'm sure you've seen some of the the pictures and learned about it maybe in school. Some of the terrible things. He endured all of that. And in May of 1945, Hitler committed suicide. Germany surrendered. One month after After one month after Bonhoeffer was killed one month after he was hung like he endured all of that time up until the very end and one month before the war ended they killed him and you know what I think why like God why would you do that you know? Like why why would you allow that to happen? He made it all the way to the end. He made it all the way through all that. Like, why did you have to take him? Like I think about all that he could have done in Germany, like rebuilding Germany after that time. And I think like this box that I've created for God in my mind, God has broken out of. He's not fitting in the box that I've created with him. This framework that I've created for God in my mind, he's not fitting into the framework anymore. Let me ask you this. Do you have things in your life that have happened, that have, that have shaken up your understanding of God, where, where God doesn't fit into the box that you've created for him in your mind, you know, where, where God did something that just doesn't make sense to you? you know, may, maybe for you it was a loved one that passed away. Or, or maybe for you it's you know, something terrible that happened to you or to somebody that you love. Or maybe for you, it's a different sort of loss that you've experienced. Let me ask you this How does it make you see God? Like when you think about that, when God does something that you go, I don't, this isn't the God that I understand, how do you see Him? Do you get angry with Him? Do you get frustrated with Him? Do you get scared of Him? Well, tonight, I want to look at a passage. We're going to continue in the book of Acts. I want to look at a passage that's kind of a strange passage in the Bible. It's a hard passage because God does something that, if we're honest, for most of us, doesn't fit in this box that we create for him in our mind. He does something that, in many ways, doesn't make sense to us. We go, God, why? I don't understand. Why would you do that? And it's okay for us to admit that. And I hope tonight to maybe make a little bit more sense of it for us. But before we kind of dig into it, I want to remind us of something I think is really important. It's probably important for us to remember all the time. And maybe especially when we're wrestling with something where we go, God, I don't understand why you're doing or why you're allowing to be done what's happening. It's a passage from Isaiah 55. This is what it says. So God is speaking to the Israelites through Isaiah. And this is what he says. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts... Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Like there's times we go, God, I don't understand what you're doing. I, I, I don't get it. But we step back and we go, but I trust you. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Your, hot, your, your ways are higher than my ways. I don't get it, but I trust you in that. So I, th- I want that to sort of set the foundation for what we're going to dig into tonight as we wrestle with God's heart and God's way. So what I want you to do is open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, we're going to pick up at verse 1. If you don't have a Bible of your own, we have a whole table full of them back there. If you raise your hand, we'll make sure that you get one. In the church Bibles, it's page 886. And usually what I do when you're flipping to the page is I give you a little bit of background on the passage to kind of catch you up to where we're at. Tonight, I want to do something a little bit different. I want to jump into the passage first, and then I want to give you some background on it second. Okay? Before I, before I start, I'll say this. So we're continuing, if you're visiting tonight or you're new tonight, we're continuing in this discussion of Acts. so we're looking at the early church. We're getting a glimpse of the early church and the multiplication and the growth of the church. And the church at this point is literally like just months old and it's fragile. It's in its infancy. Okay. So I want you to see this. Look at what happens in Acts chapter five, starting in verse one. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, and they wrapped up his body, and they carried him out, and they buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, he said, Tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Like, that, that seems a little extreme, doesn't it? Death for a lie? And, I mean, they were still pretty generous, right? I mean, they still sold a plot of land and gave a whole bunch of money to the church, even though they kept a little bit back for themselves. Like, why would God do that? God's not fitting in the box right, that I've created for him. Why would he do that? How do you, I wish I could get in your mind, like, how do you reconcile that in your mind? When you read that, like, if somebody were to come to you and say, Steve, here's a passage of scripture. What does this mean? This is the God you serve? How would you respond to that? Like, in your head, how do you reconcile it? And how does it make you see God? Like, how does it make you view him? Does it make you feel angry at him? Frustrated with him? Scared of him? It's a tough passage, right? But we don't shy away from tough passages. We want, we want to dig into it and try to help it make sense. And so as I've been studying this passage, I want to do this. As I've been studying this passage, there's some things that stick out to me. There's some things, several things that as I read it just kind of jump off the page to me. The first one is this, and I'll kind of say I'll, I'll say this quickly, kind of as an aside. This passage is a great reason to trust the truthfulness of the Bible. This is a great reason to trust the truthfulness of the Bible. Sometimes you see shows like on the History Channel or whatever. I saw one the other day called Banned from the Bible. And they talk about you know how the early church uh, like edited different books of the Bible to, to appeal to the masses. Listen, if that's what the church did, this passage would not be in the Bible, right? Like This is a challenging passage. This is a great reason for us to trust the Bible because it's in there. And it's tough. And it's kind of ugly. It's tough to explain. If the early church was trying to make Christianity look good to the masses, they would have got rid of this passage, right? But they didn't. Here it is. So this passage being in there, first thing I noticed, this passage being in there, this is another reason, this is a good reason for me to trust the truthfulness of the Bible. That's the first thing I noticed. The second thing, we need to dig in deeper here. Like we need to read this more than just at face value. It's a pretty simple story, right? I mean, the story is—it's not that complicated of a story. This couple, Ananias and Sapphira, they're part of the church. They have a plot of land. They sell the land. They put the money at the apostles' feet, saying, "This is all of the money." When really, they've held back some of their own, right? Ananias goes in first. He gives it, and Peter says, "Why did you do this? Why are you lying?" Right? Is this all the money? No. Why are you lying? He strikes him dead. God strikes him dead through Peter. A few hours later, Sapphira comes in. He gives her a chance, right? He says, Is this all the money that you got for it? Yes, it is. Strikes her dead. They bury it right next to him. And great fear, seizes everybody. It's, it's not a complicated story. It's a pretty simple story. But I think we need to look a lot deeper. I don't think this passage is so much about how terrible lying is. Although, lying's not right. It's a sin, right? It's not a good thing. But I don't think this passage is so much about how terrible lying is. As much as it's a passage on how important our hearts are. How important what our hearts are filled with is. This story, if you take a note, this story is not so much about lying as it is about our hearts, right? So lying's wrong, no doubt about it, right? I hate being lied to. We're all lied to at various points. I hate every second of it, whether, you know, it's uh, the cable company or our employer or our neighbor or our kids. We all get lied to at various times. You ever have somebody lie to you when you know they're lying? You ever, you ever go in those situations? Like somebody's saying something that you know is like unequivocally, unequivocally you know is not true and they're lying to you right there. Like what do you do in those situations? you go, no that's not true. And like make them squirm. I remember when I was in in high school, I had this uh, North Carolina hat. It's my favorite hat. I was so excited. I loved this hat. This is when I had hair. This hat fit me perfectly, right? And I wore it to school one day, and I had gym class, and I left it in the locker room after gym class, and when I went back, it was gone. I was like, dog, they're it." Like, it's not easy to find the right hat, right? This hat's gone. And so, you know, you just kind of move on. I moved on from my hat. Lost, right? And like two months later, this dude at school was wearing the exact same hat. I walked up to him. I'm like, Is that your hat? He's like, Yeah. Where'd you get that hat? My mom got it for me. Really? Where'd she get it? I don't know. When did she get it? I don't know. Start asking all the questions, right? Eventually, I got my hat back. We'll leave it at that, right? <laughs> we get lied to all the time. Lying is like part of it. Why do people lie? It's part of life. Why do people lie? Self-preservation, right? Selfishness, pride, greed, maybe fear. What does lying reveal to us? Well, lying reveals what's in our hearts, Right? That's what it does. Lying reveals what's in our hearts. So you go back to this passage and you see something fascinating. Did you see what happened? We, I skipped it. I, didn't, I intentionally didn't give you the context of this passage. You know what happened right before this? We, we got a couple weeks ago, we looked at a couple of the snapshots of the church, right? One of them was at the end of chapter 4 of Acts. The church is generous. It's united. It's God-focused. It's inviting others, right? Right after that is this. very last two uh, verses in chapter 4. This is what it says. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. That's the very end of chapter 4. This very generous guy named Barnabas. We're going to read more about him in the future here. He sells this field and he puts the money at the apostles' feet. And you know he got a lot of love for that, right? Like You know, in the church. Like he, was re- he, was, he was valued. He was recognized for that. Like that, ju- that Barnabas is a good dude. He's a good guy, right? And what he did, so later we see that he actually was a really good guy. But what he did was at that moment in selling the field, is he kind of revealed his heart. He revealed what was inside his heart. Well, look back at our passage. Look back at verse uh, 1 of chapter 5. So, Joseph, Barnabas, sold a field. He brought the money, put it at the apostles' feet. First 1 of chapter 5. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Sounds pretty similar, Right? surely this was intentional by the guy who wrote the book of Acts, a guy named Luke, same guy who wrote the gospel of Luke. From the outside, it looks very much like what Barnabas did. Except that we can't see their heart. Right? We can't see their heart. But somehow, God gave Peter insight straight into their heart. And whereas Barnabas's heart was apparently filled with God's spirit of generosity and love, did you see what he says, what Peter says Ananias' heart is filled with? Did you see it? Did you catch that? Satan. Look back at the passage. Look back at verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of, some of the money that you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? After it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've lied, not, not I'm sorry, you have not lied just to human beings, but to God. See, somehow God allowed Peter to see Ananias' heart. And what he saw must have been terrible, right? It must have been terrible. It wasn't filled with the Spirit, as we're called in Ephesians 5.18. Ephesians 5.18 says, be filled with the Spirit. Same word filled is used here. His heart was filled in another way. It was filled with Satan, And when it says that, I I don't know if it literally means Satan as much as it's a way of saying that his heart was filled with the things that Satan is filled with. Things like pride, jealousy, selfishness, and greed. Somehow God allowed Peter to see into Ananias' heart and to see what his heart was filled with. What do you think is a bigger deal? that Ananias lied or that his heart was filled with the things of Satan and that he was looking to influence the church. He wanted to be somebody in the church. He saw, he saw what happened to Barnabas, right? And he wanted to be somebody in the church. See, what's in our hearts is what counts most and our actions reveal it. What's in our hearts, that's what counts most and our actions reveal it. In God's economy, that's, that's how it is. God sees our hearts and he cares not just about the things that we do, but why we do those things. See, look at their actions. They're, they're actually much worse. When I, when I first read this, I go, like, what? that's so extreme. They were still generous, right? But when you look in deeper, look at their actions. They're, they're way worse than what you think when you first read it. Like, this was a premeditated lie, right? Like, they had thought about this they had planned it this was this was planned out hypocrisy they were proactive in it right like they took the initiative to do this it was unnecessary it was intentional it wasn't like they were put on the spot and they're like uh 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 they planned this from the very beginning why i don't know they wanted they wanted recognition they wanted the respect of the people to be thought of well by everybody to be to be famous in the community But they were also selfish They were greedy Still fighting for their independence Rather than dependence on God And interdependence with the community of God With the church That's what a heart filled with Satan looks like Like that's that's what it is God saw it And he allowed Peter to see it too And this Their lie, it was a lie to Peter It was a lie to the apostles To the community of believers, right? But much more than that It was a lie to God A lot of times we think, like when we think about lies or we think about think about wrong things that we've done, we think about how it affects other people, right? And it does, don't get me wrong. When we do the wrong thing, when I sin in my life, it affects everybody, it affects affects others. But think about how much more it affects God. Think about how when we lie, when we deceive, when we do the wrong thing, how that must make God feel. If I lie, that's gonna hurt Marsha. But man, that's going to hurt the God who loves me much, much, much more. It deeply affects him, and it deeply hurts him. And so, God reserves the right to be God. He loves this church, he protects it, and he steps out of this box that I've created for him with the church in its fragile infancy, and he strikes these two down. He strikes down those that have hearts that are filled with satanic things. That's what it says. That's what the text says. Ananias first and then Sapphira. He gives Sapphira a chance, right? He gives her one last chance. He calls her in. He says, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, it is. Yes, it is, Peter. Peter said, how could you do this? How could you conspire to test the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are coming in. They're going to bury you as well. Guys, can we can we like bring this into the to the 21st century? It's 2000 years ago, right? Like can we think about what this means for us? Because I'm pretty sure Luke puts this in in the book in, in the book of Acts in the Bible as a warning to us. I'm pretty sure he does. Right? So what can we learn from them? Let me ask you some questions. And I want you to do the hard work. Like I want you to think about these things. Think about this in your own life. Don't answer out loud, but just think in your heart. What's in your heart? What's your heart filled with? All all of our hearts are filled with something or some things. What is it? It could be things like selfishness and fear and busyness and worry, hypocrisy, pleasure, us, me-centered, right? Or it could be the spirit and the gifts of the spirit. You know what those are? Remember, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all that sort of stuff. Your actions will always reveal what's in your heart, eventually, right? Your actions are always going to reveal what's in your heart. How are you living? Think about these questions. How are you living publicly around everybody else as well as privately when no one else is around? Like, what are you doing with your time? What do you spend your time doing? Like, when you look at your day, what are those non-negotiable things? Like, this is the most important. I always, every day, I get this done. I brush my teeth. I da-da-da-da-da. What does it look like in your life? What are the things that you do? How about this? Are there any ways that you're lying to God? Getting a little uncomfortable, right? Lying to men, yes. I get that. There are also lies to God. He knows, right? He knows your heart. As much as we might try, we can't deceive him. As much as we can deceive other people, we're not going to deceive him. He knows our hearts. He knows everything about us. And he wants to change it if we're willing. In your life, how about this? In your life, are you being led by God's spirit or your spirit? Are you doing what you want, when you want, how you want? Are you making God the center? Like, is, is he the most important thing? He, he's a jealous God. I mean, he calls himself that. He's a jealous God. You know what that means? He wants to be number one in our lives. He wants to be the priority. He doesn't want to be number two. He's the only thing that's, that's worthy to be number one, right? He doesn't want to be number two. Are you being led by God's spirit like Barnabas was? Or are we being led by another spirit like Ananias and Sapphira were? I, I want to look back at one last thing from the text that I think is really, 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 really important for us to get. This is so this is so huge, and I want to end this way. Because I want you to be thinking about this as you go out of here. Look back at verse 10. As Sapphira dies, okay, this is what it says. It says, at that moment that she fell, at that moment she fell down at Peter's feet and died. Then the men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, buried her beside her husband. This is what it says. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The people's response when God exercised his right to be God and struck down Ananias and Sapphira, the people's response was fear. Fear. And this wasn't those outside the church. It wasn't just those outside the church. It included them too. But this is the church. This is the people of God. The Christian's response to God was fear. It says it in verse 5 too. What does it mean? Think about this question. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Think about that in your own life. That, That word fear there, it's phobos. It's where we get our word phobia from, right? It means terror, dread, respect, reverence. It sounds like a negative thing, fear, right? Like when you fear something, it's like, I don't, I don't want to fear something. I don't like that feeling. We have to be really careful with what we let our daughter watch on TV because if she sees something that is scary to her, like almost every time she will have a nightmare about it in the middle of the night and wake everybody up and she's like screaming in fear. It's heartbreaking. Like she's terrified. Yeah, you know what I'm talking She's terrified, right? And it breaks my heart, too. No one likes fear. No one likes to be scared. It's generally a negative thing. How could fearing God be anything other than negative? Well, I read this article this week about fearing God. It was so good. It was, it was so interesting. It said, in the Bible, we're told at least 300 times to fear God. Isn't that interesting? at least 300 times to fear God. And it's a positive thing. It's actually a good thing for us. And before you start thinking, oh yeah, that's, that's all Old Testament stuff. I'm a New Testament Christian. I'm not supposed to fear God anymore. Maybe Jesus said it the strongest in Matthew 10, 28. He said, don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one, capital O, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That's what Jesus tells us, right? See, I worry sometimes... That we've lost the fear of God, you know. As as we begin to to like elevate ourselves, we minimize God. You know what I mean? Like I, I start to think. Like, I mean, it's kind of our culture, right? Like I'm pretty important. Life's kind of about me, right? I am the mo- I am the pinnacle. When we do that, when we make ourselves big, we make God smaller. We we minimize him. Guys, listen. He's Huge. He's huge. He's vast. He's gigantic, awesome. So powerful, all powerful, all knowing and completely free to do as he pleases. He's so much greater than any power or any person in this world or in the spiritual world that we can't see. And he's holy, like he's, he's perfect and he's our judge and he has the power and the freedom to either send us to heaven or to send us to hell. And we're none of those things, right? We're, we're, we're none of that. It's appropriate that you and I fear him. And it's not like, fearing God's not like I fear the boogeyman. You know? Like, I don't want to open the closet because he's going to come and get me. That's not, that's not what we mean when we say fearing God. You know what, you know what it's kind of like? Kind of? It's like, I, when I was younger, I went to the Grand Canyon. Our, our family took a trip to the Grand Canyon. It was great. It was incredible. You stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon, and you go, Oh my. I am Tiny. I am so insignificant. I am so small. And then you stand at the edge of like a, a thousand foot cliff and you go, it's fearful. It's frightening, right? You don't mess around with the Grand Canyon, with the edge of the Grand Canyon. That's kind of what it's like to fear God. I read this article by a guy named William Eisenhower on fearing God. It was so insightful. This is what he wrote. I would throw it up on the screen. This is what he wrote. Think about this. This is so insightful. He says, Unfortunately, many of us presume that the world is the ultimate threat, and God's function is to offset it. How different this is from the biblical position that God is far scarier than the world. When we assume that the world is the ultimate threat, we give it unwarranted power. For in truth, the world's threats are temporary. When we expect God to balance the stress of the world, we reduce him to the world's equal. As I walk with the Lord, I discover that God poses an ominous threat to my ego, but not to me. He rescues me from my delusions so that he may reveal the truth that sets me free. He casts me down only to lift me up again. He sits in judgment of my sin, but forgives me nevertheless. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but love from the Lord is its completion. That's good. See, fearing God is absolutely appropriate for us as godly people, as godly men and women it 's appropriate if you think we don 't need to fear God because you know i 'm a new a new testament christian you 're missing it you 're missing it if we 're missing the fear of God, our view of God is not nearly big enough if i you look at the Bible, you look at elijah, Isaiah, job, any of these guys who had like these experiences with God, you know what they did they, they cringe. In fear because they recognize how little they are compared to how big He is. If we're missing the fear of God, our view of God is not big enough. It's entirely too small. But that's one side of the coin. There's another side of the coin. The other side of the coin is love. This incredible, huge, all powerful, all knowing, holy, completely free God. Is in love with us. And he loves us with a love that's perfect. It's a perfect love. It says in John 15, 13, he says, Greater love is no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You know who did this for us? Jesus. You know who Jesus is? God the Son. You know who sent God the Son? God the Father. You know why? Because he loves us. With a perfect love, completely. Maybe you want to take a second and write this down. God is worthy to be feared, and He says that I'm worthy to be loved. It's two sides of a coin. God is worthy to be feared, He's huge, and He says that I'm worthy to be loved see God's hugeness, His majesty, His power are graciously balanced for us by His perfect love. And we see this in Jesus. We see a perfect demonstration of this in Jesus. Jesus was incredibly powerful and yet incredibly loving. Guys, if if we don't fully grasp what it means to fear God, we will never even come close to grasping what it means that God loves us. We'll never get it. How, how insane that is. I, I will never understand how incredible that is that God loves me until I realize how huge he is compared to me. How insignificant and unholy and unrighteous I am compared to him. I'll never get it. I'll never understand the extent of his love until I understand how huge he is. Until I understand what it means to fear God. I challenge you this week. If you don't, like, if you're wrestling with that, if you don't, if you go, man, I don't know, I, I didn't think I had to, I didn't think fearing God was something that I should do as a Christian. I thought that was like Old Testament stuff. I, I really challenge you to pray about that. Ask God about that. What, like, what does that look like for you in your life? He'll show you, He'll answer for you. See guys, the, the, the church in Acts, this is a very pivotal time in its history. It's new. It's young. It's, it's, it's infantile. It's fragile. And God needed to protect it. And he did. In a way that maybe doesn't make that much sense to us. We step back, we go, I don't, underst- I don't understand God. But we trust that his ways are higher than our ways. Right? His mind, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But as I look at this story, you know what I see? Like if I just, if I take a step back and I look at the big, the big picture message of this warning passage, you know what I see? I see a God who is in love with this church of which you and I are a part if we're followers of Jesus and he's willing to go to great lengths to protect her. He absolutely loves this collective group of people who are called out by him and are committed to following Jesus as their Savior. And that begs a question to me. That begs a question to me. Do I love the church that way? He loves us with a perfect love. Do I love the church that way? Let me say it more personally Do I love my church that way? Do I, do, I, do I love it the way that He does? Listen, I get we're in a completely different time, completely different culture, completely different people. But our church, our campus, we're at the very beginning too. We're in a very fragile state, a very pivotal time in our history as well. We're young, we're fragile, we're infantile. I am sure that God, and we've seen it, God is protecting us in ways over and over and over again. In many ways that we probably will never know on this side of eternity. He loves us. Do I love us that same way, guys? That's humbling to me, and that is wonderfully challenging to me because I love you guys. Like I, I, I absolutely adore you guys. I love what I get to do. I love what I get to lead us into. I, I love what I get to lead us through. It's tough, but it is a blast. You know why? Because I get to do it with you guys. We get to do it together. I love you guys. But when I think about how completely and totally this incredible, huge, all-powerful, all-knowing, holy, sovereign, free God of the universe loves you, like his perfect love, man, that motivates me. That inspires me, you know? Like, I, I want to love you guys that same way. I want to love the church the way that he loves the church because I want to be like him. I'll end with this. One of, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and it's a prayer for my life, is John 3.30. In John 3.30, let me kind of set the stage here. You have John the Baptist, and he's baptizing in the Jordan River, one side of the Jordan River, and some of his disciples come up to him, and they're a little bit jealous, they're a little bit frustrated, and they come up and they say, Rabbi, the guy on the other side of the river is baptizing too. And more people are starting to go to him. What gives? And I love John's response. You know what it is? He says, he must become greater. I must become less. You know what he's talking about? Jesus, right? Guys, as you and I look to be his church and live on the mission that he's called us to live on here, may that be our prayer too that he becomes more, that he becomes greater, and we become less.